Hi, welcome to another Bump, Birth and Beyond podcast brought to you by myself, Dr. Joseph Scroy, and proudly brought to you by Tiny Hearts Education. On today's episode, we're joined by Laura Robertson, uh, who shares her birth story. She's had three children, Jackson, Ella and Sophie. And uh, in her last pregnancy, as all pregnancies are, they're all a little bit different. Um, Laura had some difficulties towards the latter part of pregnancy and also childbirth that probably had a little bit of challenges for her in terms of just processing the whole concept of what happened during that whole birthing experience. And she shared that on social media. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about her experiences and try to sort of you know, come up with uh, uh, a cathartic way of uh, getting through it all. All right, so ha- thank you so much, Laura, for coming and speaking to us. No, thanks for having me. It's really good to be here. So you've got three lovely children. Uh, tell me about their ages, uh, yep. where they're up to in their stages of life. So we've got Jackson. He's five and a bit. He's studying school um, in two weeks, actually, which um, is exciting and scary for me. Um, we've got Ella, who's three and a half, who's our wild child. She's got a very strong personality, yeah. but... Um, yeah, we, we love it a bit. And we've got Sophie, who's 14 months old. Wow. So wow. the third um, very chill baby in our family who, um, yeah, she's she's just great. So after a wild child, you decided to go for the third. Yeah. yeah. What about the fourth now that Sophie's so chilled? Yeah, I know, I know. It's um, <laughs> We get that all the time. It's not It's not a no. <laughs> it's not a no. That's what, actually, yeah. no, interestingly, I've seen a few more people now thinking certainly about the second, after the second, thinking about the third, but some who are thinking of the fourth yeah, after the third. it's not that common anymore. And I yeah. think um, people stop asking once. I know when we announced we are having a third, it was more, it was a shock to say, wow, you're having three kids. So then people kind of forget to ask about the ones after that. So yeah. we're kind of under the radar, which is good. So, <laughs> um, but I've always wanted a big family. I come from one of four. So oh, right, we'll yeah. see what happens. <laughs> All right, well, tell us, we're going to talk a little bit about, I think, each one of the birthing experiences, and yep. we might focus a little bit just on the, the first two, but obviously Sophie's was a lot different to the, the first two, and sort of that, what brought you out to sort of speak about your childbirth experience with Sophie. But tell us a little bit about Jackson's birth, um, how many weeks you were, and how that whole experience went for you. Yeah, so I hit um, 40 weeks with Jax, and um, at my 40-week checkup with the obstetrician, they... I did mention that he wasn't moving as much, so they went forward and booked an induction for me two days later. Yeah. Um, everything was great. Everything was fine. It was, um, I'm assuming, being my first birth, the slower side of things, and it, and it did kind of go from a Saturday morning all the way through to the Sunday night. So everything was great. I, I had an epidural with him to give me a, a break and um, get things moving along and was able to give birth to him vaginally um, and and everything was fine. So so no assistance? No, no, no. no. The- so there, yeah, it worked out very well. It was very tiring and very yeah. long. It, I think it took me about an hour and 40 to get him out. But he, he came out and it was um, it was really special. It was really yeah. good. Um, a lot of women, I think a lot of women get concerned, and certainly in my own private practice, a lot of women get concerned about induction. Had you had any fears at that point about being induced? No. So I think... Being my first, especially once they mentioned that they wanted to book me in, I, I was more the opposite. I was very excited. I I was thinking, great, let's meet him. We did know he was a boy. So I we were really excited that we knew the date and that he was going to be coming and I went in, um, didn't know much about it. So maybe that's a good thing, but <laughs> I went in unbeknown to what was coming, but yeah. it was it was there was nothing um wrong with the birth. There was nothing I could fault with it. It was just what birth is. Yeah, you know, hard work, and we got there, and it's. I wouldn't really change anything about right. his birth. It was good. So it was a nice experience. Yeah. 
Um, and were there any concerns that happened during Jackson's pregnancy that you were you know, worried about at all? No, nothing. His, no. his pregnancy was very smooth. I just became quite grumpy towards the end because yeah. I guess I was impatient to meet my first child. Nothing. Nothing yeah. was wrong at all. Was a really lot of good. people are, aren't they? I think it's interesting. There's a group of people that I think and, you know, the husband, the wife or the wife and the wife and, or the single woman, they all sort of sit there and there's this anxiety or that you're anxious to meet the child. You're not anxious about the pregnancy necessarily, but you're anxious about meeting the... Definitely. Did you have any sort of thoughts about, you know, did you know you were having a boy at that stage? Yeah, we did. So we did know. Um, so I think oh, I was one of those ones that would watch One Born Every Minute. I would yeah. sit there on Google and read everything. We, we did a um, calm birth course. So I felt like I, I was as prepared as I could be. Yes. And then, of course, it was the total opposite to what I assumed or yeah. what the movies made it out or what I thought my journey would be with his birth. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, it is it is what it is. You can't change it. And, you know, we, we were happy with everything that um, it, it brought him to us. So, And I think it's important. I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of media that sort of, and even as medical professionals, we talk about the number of kicks you should feel with baby. And in actual fact, we now talk about the pattern of movement. So yeah. if we're concerned about a decrease in the pattern of movement or a change in the pattern of movement, that's when people or women should be telling their healthcare professional, whether it be their midwife or their doctor. And invariably, when you get to about 40 weeks, if you're worried about movements, uh, we will most most obstetricians, most hospitals will suggest an induction of labour. Definitely, because the benefit versus the risk, you know, potentially of something happening uh, is you know minimal. So we know that having a baby after thirty nine weeks, that or even after thirty seven weeks for that matter, baby's term. So there's no harm in having Bubba out, and of course we all want to have you holding your baby, um, and that's the most important thing. All right, and then. Um, you decided soon after to have Ella. Yeah, yeah. So they're just under two years apart, those two. Yeah. And um, Ella, in, it, it very much suits her personality now. She came at 11 days overdue. So she missed. Right. I actually went in to be induced, uh, which I do remember feeling very defeated. I was very upset purely because I really longed for that to go into labour naturally. I yeah. wanted to experience that, that, you know, so many of my friends and family would go go into labour on their own. And I, it, it is, you know perspective it is a kind of a silly emotion to feel but you just have that desire or you think to yourself why doesn't my body go into labor why can't I do it so I went on the 10th day which was the hospital's policy um, and when they examined me then they said we can avoid putting in a gel which I took as a positive that was a good thing and they said just come back in the morning and we'll break your waters and then that night we dropped our son off for a sleepover because we knew we'd had to go in on the next morning and I ended up um, my waters broke the second I walked in the door after dropping him off. So, yeah. and then about five hours later, she was in my arms. So, did you need to be? Did they need to give you the hormone drip at that one? Nothing, nothing. She came on hard and fast, all on her own. So, let's talk about the difference in those two experiences. Because number one, you felt that you weren't. You were feeling as you were getting close to that point of induction that you were failing yourself, really. Which yep. is, you know, a, a, a probably a, a, a natural thing to think, but certainly something that you know, I think in a way is popularised because we put so much pressure on individuals nowadays, whether it be because of social media or whether it be because of what's happening in in terms of the way that you, when you talk to your mates and stuff like that. Did you feel any, when you get, when you got into labour, did you, re, did you feel that there was any difference in the sort of the, 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 the mechanism of labour? I mean, obviously the second baby is always going to be easier, but in terms of the pain, in terms of getting through it all, did you feel that there was a difference? 100%, completely different. And yeah. I even feel... For someone like my husband to sit there and and once I'd we'd had Allah and we spoke about the two different births, he said, 
the difference between the two was just phenomenal. It was just... What did you, what did you experience as different? I think for me it was just um, the the process of it, that it, it was able to build up on its own. So yeah. I found being induced with Jackson, you know, one second you're lying there and it's fine and the next it's just, you know, you're going to go from zero to 100. That's how I explain it to people yeah. when they ask what it was like. But for others it built up slowly over that five hours and I know five hours I'm very lucky. That's yeah. a really good time from when my waters broke to her being in my arms. So, um, And the pain did build quite quickly and I find that the contraction pain was the same but I think because there was the build-up and yeah. um, I was able to move around at the time when I had Jackson, I was induced, the policy at the time then was to stay on the bed and that's, you know, that's what it was and I think I was a bit upset about mm. that. Or well, they, they preferred me to be on the bed being monitored right. then. They didn't have the portable option uh, at the time why. yeah so then with Ella because I was able to move around a little bit and um and stand up or lean on the Swiss ball it I just I, f- I feel like because I felt happy at the same time in being in so much pain but I I know at the back of my mind I felt proud that my body was doing yeah. it so I kind of looked at it as a positive and then I did ask start asking for pain really very quickly and very loudly uh and she came she, she came. yeah she came and I was just I was so thankful to feel those feelings of you know, when people say, what does it feel like to need to push? But I didn't know. I didn't know yeah. what with Jax as I was told when to push. But for Allah, um, to have that feeling, it, you know, it was just really empowering, I think. Did you have in any of the, with, with Jackson, did you have an epidural or did you have any, you did have an epidural? Yeah, I started off with the gas, but I think, as I just mentioned, because it went um, once they put the drip in and yeah. I think the dosage was turned up, his heart rate dropped really quickly. Right. Um, I was I was resting on my own in the room. They sent my husband home, and all of a sudden they came in. Obviously, they saw something was going on, yeah. and, and everything was turned on. Waters broke, drip very very quickly, and yes. so everything just followed very quickly. Um, but with him, I did get an epidural. But I think the good sign of uh, good side, sorry, of him taking so long for me to push him out, they they turned it down, or right. I'm not sure if it was off or down. So by the end of when he was coming out, I I could feel everything. So yeah, which some people might not prefer, but I did like that I liked that I could feel what was going on but I, I definitely did not know when it was time to push but I did feel him come out and I think a lot probably is advanced even in the five years since you've yeah. had Jackson in terms of anesthetic uh, we the the anesthetist used to give these infusions of of the medicine into the back for the epidural that would be constant over a period of the whole labor so you, a woman really didn't have any control about how much medication she was giving herself and so towards the end of the labour, didn't feel that sense that she needed to push. A lot of hospitals now are using uh, patient-controlled anaesthetic. So you can actually press the button and give yourself a dose of anaesthetic when you're feeling it too much. And as you get towards the latter part of the labour, you can actually stop pressing it and then actually have that sensation that the baby's there for pushing. So I think things, it's interesting how quickly yeah, things change. Yeah, it's only five years, but even hearing that, I think that's, that's great That's because yeah. it feels like that's what happened unintentionally with me for Jax and I, I liked that. I yeah. enjoyed that. And the other thing I suppose is there's a lot more telemetry. You know, that's obviously, it. you know, we do have the ability now to put the electrodes on and allow you to walk around even in the setting of being induced. And, and I think the other thing is it's difficult because obviously the second one you did go into labour but I reckon either even if you were induced for the second one, it still would have been a five-hour labour. It probably may have been a bit quicker, you're right, because the hormone drip may have expedited yeah. things a little bit. I believe it would have been too. That's, yeah, you know, now been. that I've experienced Sophie's, I believe Alice would have been like that if yeah. I was induced. Yeah, I would have thought so. And I, I liken a lot of women say to me, what's the difference? And I've, of course, never been through labour, <laughs> <laughs> maybe in a past life. But uh, I often liken it to 
you're right. I think you explained it really well how you get this sense that you're slowly building up. In a way, you're almost becoming desensitized because, you know, you're getting one slow wave that increases, increases, increases in intensity and frequency in terms of your labor contraction pain. So the perception of pain, I think, is, 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 is different, although the height of the contraction might be exactly the same. I think at the end of the day, you've got to have those labor pains to have the baby. Definitely. So uh, Ella was born and obviously there was a sense of euphoria from your perspective and she was a healthy little tiny top. Were there any, you know, looking back on it now as they're growing up, were there any trials that you had or any, you know, did you have, were you surrounded by a village of people to help you? Always, always. I could not, I cannot get through um, this journey of motherhood or parenthood as well, my husband would agree, without being in a good village. It's, yeah. it's something that I feel everybody you know, should surround themselves with a good village. And it doesn't even have to be um, in person sometimes. And I know online things can have a negative, but the, there's a very big positive there if you're in the right one. Um, yeah, you, you need that village to talk to, to help you, everything. And I wouldn't I wouldn't have gone through pregnancies, birth, the afterbirth, and even now I still rely on my village every day. So who's part of your village? Uh, my parents, yeah. um, all, both, all of our parents, um, my, my siblings, my husband's siblings, Friends, friends with with kids, our friends without kids. Um, we're really lucky that even our friends that haven't started their own parenthood journey, they're still so amazing with ours. And you know, I often try to tell them how grateful that they don't probably realise how much of a help they are. And I know by the child number two and three, we weren't afraid to say, you know, don't worry about gifts, but if you could bring dinner, or if yeah. you could, you know, sometimes some would say, can I do your dishes? And you'd, you'd the natural instinct is go, don't be silly, but you go, oh, that that would be great, thank yeah. you, or even just letting me have a shower. So it's. Mine, my village is definitely lots of family and a lot of friends, a lot of friends for sure, and even some that can't be there physically but listen to me when I talk to them, I message them, I, I vent to them, you know, yeah. on, on Facebook or, or whatever it may be. So it's um, I, I'm very lucky. I've got a big village and um, I'm, I'm very, you know, proud to say that I rely on that. I'm, I'm not going to say I do this all on my own and, um, you know, it's I reach out to them all the time. I need to. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little afterwards. We're going to talk a little bit about Sophie and how you use social media, I suppose, to have that cathartic experience about her your childbirth experience with her, and how that then encouraged other women to talk about their childbirth. How did you note in terms of social media? Because five years ago, obviously, social media really, in terms of women talking about their birthing experiences, was probably actually quite minimal, and even their pregnancies really. And of course, now we've got Instagram, and everyone's sort of you know, blogging about everything. How did you see, like in, when you, just before Jackson was born, were you using any sources of information other than the information was given from the hospital and friends or was there information available from social media that you were drawing upon? I would I would say not so much. Yeah. I think what you said then was, was spot on. I've noticed in the five years from having Jackson to having Sophie and so, you know, it is only, there's only just over five years between those two. Back then it was, you know, people only share the good photos and say, you know, this is going great, which it is, but nothing, nothing else was said. And I found my journey with him afterwards, I did almost form, I formed a very, very mild of the postpartum depression because it was more, I would sit there upset in the middle of the night thinking, why didn't anybody tell me or why didn't I know about all of this? Why didn't I know that they cry all the time and they yeah. don't sleep and my boobs would be sore? And no, no one says that. No one says that side of things. But now, through blogging and through social media, it 
people are more showing the other side or the real side of what, you know, you, you start seeing hashtags of real motherhood and, yeah. and you know, it's. I think it's really good and that's what I started to do with Sophie's birth, just not as much as other people do but little snippets to show that, you know, it's not what it was portrayed all the time. Like there's yeah. still that, you know, mums still go through things that, you know, isn't always sunshines and roses all the time. It's Without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And, that, and I think that's the, the problem. I mean, social media gets criticised heavily particularly in the way they portray women in terms of looks and all that sort of stuff, Um, and also in terms of beautifying everything. Uh, And it's actually good to have an element of reality now uh, set in where people actually talk about negative experiences but how they got through that negative experience. Um, And it's become, in a way, a very, it's it's an extension of the village that you were talking about before. I love talking about this topic. Jackson, when Jackson was, uh, when you were think, when you were pregnant with Jackson, I don't think there would have been the non-invasive perinatal screening tests in terms of testing for Down syndrome more than five years ago. Uh, so the gender reveal you probably didn't do somewhere around about eleven or twelve weeks. No. With Sophie, did you do the new test, the the non-invasive perinatal test? No. We didn't. No. So you waited until you found out roughly around twenty weeks. No, for Ella and Sophie, we didn't know. Oh, I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. We, did we, you know for Jackson? We did. Yes. Now, I've seen this explosion of people, you know, and we talked about this in every single episode, but I love it, how people talk, you know, they do a gender reveal, then they do a a baby shower, then they do a a barbecue, (laughs) a barbecue rather. Um, Did you do anything in terms of Jackson, in terms of a gender reveal? We didn't. No, we didn't. Uh, We... We just said it. <laughs> we just, just told people. Yeah, we just. Again, I don't think it was fashionable back yeah, then because yeah. there, no, no there was no one, Instagram. No one did it then. We just um, we just posted it on Facebook and yeah. said, here's our 20-week scan and it's a boy. Yeah. We were lucky that at the 12-week scan the sonographer did say, look, we I do believe it is a boy but wait until the 20-week to confirm. So we kind of had that inkling yeah, already. Yeah, yeah. So when they kind of said it at 20 weeks, it wasn't. You know, we, we kind of like, okay, he was right, that's great. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it's to- back then. I didn't. I didn't know anybody that did gender reveal. We did do a baby shower, being our yeah, um, first, our first. But then for Ella and Sophie. Uh, and why didn't you <laughs> want to find out for the last two? I didn't want to find out for Ella. Just I wanted to experience it. Um, just that feeling of giving birth and and the finding surprise. out what it is. And there's kind of a funny story behind Ella's because all I wanted was to look at Glenn, my husband, and for him to go it's a or, or say the name, whatever, whatever it may be. And I remember as she came flying out and I looked straight over at him and he said, it's a boy. And I thought to myself, wow, two boys, close in age, brothers <laughs> growing up and we said the name and I thought to myself, wow, and, and probably about, it was only 45 seconds later that the nurses, once they took her, to quickly check her and they turned around and they said, guys, it's a girl. Yeah. And I looked straight at him and I said, you just ruined every, <laughs> all that time. All the I imagery. wanted was that moment and you ruined it. Yeah. <laughs> so I, he wasn't allowed to do it for Sophie. <laughs> can't call nah. it. I think I, I, I've, said, I've said this to a few people that I, whenever a baby's born uh, under my care, I always sing them a happy birthday after the baby's born. And so the husband had announced that it was a boy and I, to be honest, in check because obviously if, as I sort of, as I help the woman catch the baby, I bring the baby up onto the mum's breast yeah. and that's it. I'm not seeing anything, right? And the baby gets in, you know, the towel gets put over Bubba and uh, skin to skin and all that stuff. But the husband said, oh, it's a, it is a boy, right? So they came up with a name and we sang happy birthday with a boy's name. And then afterwards I said, oh, well, let's have a look and we'll quickly check it. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> so this baby got two happy birthdays, yeah. one with a boy name and one with a girl yeah, name. Yeah, that was Ella. <laughs> uh, it's funny. Yeah, I think 
And the other thing to make mention is that, you know, when little girls come out, they're quite swollen down there. Yes. So no criticism. It wasn't until I husband. saw her, I did look at him and I said, okay, I see what you did there. That's, Forgive. Um, yes, I'm. <laughs> Forgiven. But it is hard for blokes. Yeah, that's it. So. Obviously, after the whirlwind of Ella, uh, how long did it take to decide to have the third? Uh, it was it was pretty similar. There's about twenty three months between the first two, and then two years, four months with Ella and Sophie. So, yeah. um, I guess in terms of when we said we were happy to have a third, it was a couple of months later to when we did for Ella. Yeah, um, we were. We're, we're so thankful and I guess it's something that I sometimes don't want to say too much because I don't want to. I know what sometimes it can be such hard journeys for people. Yeah. But we, um, we're, we're incredibly blessed that both of them, it was first go. Yeah. First, first month that we were happy to have another child. We, for all we three got, of them really? Um, for Ella and Sophie Jackson, it was only about two months. So wow. we, Very like lucky. honestly, yeah, so, so lucky and I'll never take that for granted yeah. of, of how good our journey has been when we've decided to have a family. Yeah. It's really good. So. It is. I mean, and particularly when we talk about people with fertility concerns and, you know, the average couple takes at least you know, a year to mm. sort of get pregnant. And we, we talk about, you know, 20% per month. So if you had 100 women at the start of January, in February, 20 of them would be pregnant. But in then between February and March, only 16 get pregnant. And then it sort of decreases. So it's the 20% remaining such right. that by the end of one year, 80% of women are pregnant. And 20% of women aren't. So you're very, very lucky. Oh, extremely. And I think after, you know, Allah, it was, you know, very, very quickly or quicker than what we assumed. And then when we decided to that we were happy to have a third child, I thought we, we can't be that lucky again. So yeah. I think when um we were happy to and then I did the test and a month later, I, I think I was more in shock. I just yeah. sat there shaking my head at it because I just thought that. You know, that can't be that quick again. So did you very, have, very lucky. Did you have – it's only recently that I've noticed it that some people sort of try to avoid December, January period. Did you Did you sort of sit I down never, and go – you never sort of no. went, oh, we better not this month because no. the baby might be born near December? No, we've, we've never um, – yeah. for us, my husband's always played football. Yeah. So it's always been – I know for, for Sophie, we wanted to wait to make sure that a baby wasn't born in football season again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he was dragged off the field when I went into labour with Jax. So. Oh, right. We just wanted, it's just a busy time, he, you know, with his, um, he, he enjoys playing it. We enjoy going. So we yeah. thought, let's just enjoy what's going on. So, so you yeah. did a bit of planning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that was ours, um, yeah. which is, yeah, strange, but that's just our life. <laughs> yeah, true. All righty. So um, you decided then you, you have Sophie and, of course, only one month uh, and or one month later you're pregnant. It's yep. awesome. Yeah. Uh, how did you, how did, how did sort of, what, how, did you, how did you tell your husband you were pregnant? I I think it was with Sophie that night. I did the test in the morning, so yeah. that night um, I, I was so nervous. I don't know why. It's yeah. you know something that obviously we both want to do, and um, I just remember we were about to go to bed that night, and I just kind of put the test in front of him, yeah, yeah. and it, it was very faint, but there was a line there, and I think he was probably more in shock too because he, he we just both stood at it staring, and I remember my hand, I remember specifically my hand shaking. He actually couldn't see the test properly because my hand was shaking so yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. And he said, I need to hold the test because it's wobbling. Yeah. <laughs> so did I think you do, yeah, did, you do, did you do anything different between the three children in terms of sort of announcing it to your husband? Uh, yeah, with, with Jax, I, I was convinced we were because I was um, exactly a week late of, for my period and there was no signs. And so I thought, I'm not going to do a test. We'll go to the doctors together and we'll let the doctor tell us. Yeah. Never forget sitting there and the doctor said, so you're definitely not pregnant. And I just sit there and went, you're kidding. Like, I, I have to be. So 
I was a bit upset. But, in terms know, of they did the wee test. Yeah, yeah, and, and he just, no. they just said no. And I wow. said, okay. And then exactly another week passed and still no signs. Um, my husband, he's a, an electrician and he, at the time, never really worked on Saturdays. But on this one week he took, he said, okay, I'll work on a Saturday. And I still had some tests there and I did it alone in the, in the house thinking nothing would happen and I flipped it the other way. And then when I turned it around after the three minutes and two completely dark pink lines and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. I'm pregnant and he's not here. So... I pretended that I was um, bringing him lunch to work, yeah. which I would. I don't know why he wasn't suspicious of that because yeah. that's something I would. I would never drive to a job site to bring him work um, lunch. Yeah, and I just showed him the test, and I just remember he looked straight up at me and said, "Oh, I'm really happy. That's that's yeah. really good." So you didn't do a reveal in a lunch. No, box. no, no, no <laughs> I should have. I should. I think I was just so. I remember. Um, probably not allowed, but I remembered when I was driving, I just held it in my hand at the steering wheel just yeah. to look at it because yeah. I just was so so happy that. We were having a baby. I was so excited. So, um, and I think for Ella, I just put the test there and said Jackson's going to be a big brother. Oh, nice. And um, yeah, he kind of just had to find it. So, I think you always plan to do these cool, funky things. But I know for me, I, I can't keep anything from him. I can't. He'd know straight away. So I just have to. It just comes out. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's a bit like I think when I when I wanted to propose to my wife, you know, you have these grand sort of how am I going to do it? How am I going to do it? And in the end, it was like we we're at a party, and I just thought, oh well, you know, well, this just feels so good. So I just got down on my knee. But you, you could have done the rose petals. You could have done a whole whole range of yeah. things. But it, it's, you got to do it in the moment, That's don't it. you? Yeah. All right. So Sophie's then, and 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 did the, I mean, Jackson would have been about four then. Yeah. Not yeah. So yeah. he Jacks um, just turned four, and oh, Alo. Turned two, and then Jack's turned four, yeah. um, and then a couple, and then about two months later, I had to go in to have Sophie. Yeah, so a, a busy household. Yeah. So the pregnancy with Sophie, just tell us a little bit how the start of the pregnancy went. Were there any issues that potentially cropped up? Were you worried about anything at this point in time? No, not so much worried. I, I find, um, which you know, quite often I love to put my foot in it and blow everyone's um, wives' tales things out of the water because. All three of my pregnancies are completely identical in regards to the, the week that I get sick, the week the sickness stops, the way I carry the symptoms, 100% all three identical. Yeah. Um, so I, I was convinced Ella was a boy because of that. So same, that just, yeah. um, you know, throws it off. So the same thing happened with Sophie. It was more like you just mentioned, it was, I was very tired, um, you know, trying to run around after those two. And, and I, I worked all the way up to my due date as well. So it was... It was just very tiring. It was it was yeah. very exhausting, and um, but otherwise there was no concerns. She she moved a lot, and all my appointments went were completely fine. All the checks were fine. Right. Um, and then it wasn't until that thirty three week mark when when that's when a problem right. came up. So at thirty three weeks, just walk us through what happened. I obviously went for an appointment. Was there anything that before that appointment you were concerned about? Not so much. I I was getting a lot of comments. Like a lot of people would which is funny, it's such a strange thing for people to do, but they do say it is oh, how big I was. And, yeah, you know, they're having twins. Yes, always. And, <laughs> and I work in a customer service role and I'm in a gym, so it's, yeah. you know, we, people coming through all the time and I was only getting frustrated because to, to them they only asked me once but I had been or they had only made that statement once but yeah. I had heard it about 100 what, times. What do you think about that? Do you think, you know, the general population has a right to just continually ask? I mean, I think we, we all love sharing in the joy of new life and I think that's part of the reason why people ask. But do you think it's an intrusion? I, I do. However, at the same time, I know deep down their intentions are not there yeah. and that's something else I've really tried to since going through this because another big thing I get all the time when 
I would get upset or I'd talk about Sophie's birth, people would say, oh, there's a lot worse out there or at least she's okay. Yes. And then it wasn't until this happened and, oh, look, I probably have said that in the past too to people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, or, or said to someone, your bump is tiny or this, and, and but it's not until now this that's really drawn me back to think, well, no, you can't, you know, someone's feeling something. You can't say how they're feeling. You can't kind of discredit what they're going through. Yeah. Like that's So I've become, and I've been trying to tell people, I know there's a lot worse than what happened with me, us and Sophie, but it still doesn't change that it really upset us and it hasn't, that it's affected us and that shouldn't be swept under the rug. So before 33 weeks, people were saying this to you. Yeah, yeah. I was How already, was it affecting you? I think I was just, I'd get grumpy and I even remember yeah. getting home and my husband would say, don't worry, they're not, you know, they're just saying it. They're just, yeah. it's okay. But, you know, when you mix, you're tired, you've you got your pregnancy hormones going through you, you're sore, you just, you know, at the time I sit here now and think, oh, you know, you could just smile and go, oh, thank you. But at the time, you you know, you just get grumpy about it. That, yeah. That's all. But I, I do think I would love if maybe people were more aware of how they worded things like. Yeah. Oh, without that. a doubt. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a lot, I think there's a license particularly for other, other mothers and older women just to, just to say stuff. That's it. Yeah. And I often think about it in the context of, you know, whenever you see a celebrity out, you know, maybe walking down the street, I actually avoid eye contact with them and don't speak to them purposely because I'm thinking they must just get hassled all the time. And I reckon it's the same thing. If a pregnant woman, you don't want people, unless they're close to you, you don't want people commenting, oh, that's my my feeling. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, all right, so you go to the 33-week scan with all these the people sort of saying stuff to you but you thinking everything's still okay. What happens at that 33 weeks or 30, what happens at your 33-week appointment? So it, was, it all started because they um, checked the fundal height, the yes. tape measure. So when she checked it and, um, you know, she didn't really say the, the centimetres because I, I guess from, I don't know exactly, but from having the three it was roughly how many centimetres is roughly how, you know, to kind of match the weeks. And then she she more said something about being 36 weeks. And I said, oh, no, no, I'm 33 weeks. And then she got another one in to check. And then a third nurse came in and, and I had to say, is everything okay? Like, yeah. you know, why why is there so many people checking how big I am? Is it just that is the baby big? Am I just yeah. big? Um, and then that's when they just sent me off for a scan. Yeah. And that's when they confirmed that there was um, all the, you know, the, the AFI reading, the, yeah. the fluid reading was a bit... Um, Above normal. So just to, just to recap on that, so basically I always say to people that obstetrics and, and midwifery is quite easy because we just have things for some odd reason that have just fallen into place. But if you measure from the top of the pubic bone to the top of the uterus, that measurement is generally speaking one centimetre for every week that you're pregnant. So if you're sort of measuring 28 weeks, generally speaking, you're roughly around 28 weeks plus or more, 28 centimetres roughly, uh, 28 centimetres, sorry, you're roughly 28 weeks plus or minus two weeks. If we find that the tape measure is sort of more than two centimetres out from where we're at, we then it's sort of as alarm bells. We often use it particularly from the purposes of trying to see if the baby's too small particularly, but also it gives us an indication if the baby's too big. And then that what, what that does is highlight, um, you know, the need for an ultrasound scan. Now, in the public sector, they don't have ultrasound scans all the time. So if you're seeing your healthcare givers in the public sector, generally speaking, they're doing a tape measure. A lot of people who are seeing private obstetricians will have ultrasound scans at every visit. In actual fact, I never use a tape measure because I'm scanning at every visit. So I'll actually, I actually do a, um, uh, and the, the, the most sensitive measurement in terms of the baby's health and well-being is actually the tummy size of the baby. 
Um, and so you can look at the tummy size of the baby and see whether that matches a growth chart. That's often the best indication of the health of a bubba. But a lot of us will do also growth scans. And in addition to that, check the fluid and check the blood flow through the baby. But that measurement in the absence of being able to have an ultrasound scan, because not everyone does, is a very good way of being able to sort of give us an indication about whether we need to do any further uh, investigation. So having had the ultrasound scan, then you saw that there was a bit of fluid around the baby. And we normally would have, we'd normally quite happy with having around about five centimetres of water to 25 centimetres of water surrounding Bubba. Do you know how much water was surrounding Bubba at that time? I think at the 33-week mark, it was at about 29 centimetres, right. but it did go up to even 32 and yeah. 33 in some of them. So from then, I had to have weekly scans to yeah. check the fluid. Yeah. So it, it did kind of fluctuate between them, but it never dropped below about, yeah, 28. And were they? did they do any further investigations or were they concerned about anything in terms of you and all the baby at that point? Um, they... Look, they were really good. They they did explain everything to me and, and I was really happy with that they I from the thirty three week mark I then had to go in for that um the, the scan, the ultrasound purely for the fluid uh and the and weekly monitoring as yeah. well. So they did monitor the baby every every Monday. They um they knew all my tests had come back negative for gestational diabetes. I I, I can't recall if I did do a secondary one or they were happy with the initial one. So from my understanding, it was just a case of that I there was no un- underlying issues, that everything was okay. I just simply had, I just ha- had been given that. So, Hey guys, Nikki here, co-founder at Tiny Hearts Education. At Tiny Hearts, our mission is to bring education to all Australian parents through first aid and birthing courses so you can move through pregnancy, childbirth and parenthood with confidence. To come along to one of our courses, head to tinyheartseducation.com and use the code PODCAST10 to get $10 off any course booking. That's all from me. Let's get back to Joe and today's story. So it can happen for any a, yeah. a multitude of reasons and the most common you've already alluded to is gestational diabetes. Often they will get you to do a repeat sugar drink test and also, of course, careful looking at the baby on in the ultrasound scan to make sure that everything's looking good with Bubba. Sometimes the baby can't swallow the fluid. So the amniotic fluid is actually the wee, is baby's wee. The baby will wee that out. And then there's a, a process of where the baby wees it and also drinks it and then it gets absorbed as well by the, the membranes and the body. Uh, and of course, if there's a greater output than there, sorry, greater output of urine from the baby than the input, so the baby is swallowing it or being absorbed, then eventually that fluid will accumulate around baby. And the things that we get concerned about if that occurs is, of course, you can go into labour earlier uh, and or because your waters break. That's the, that's probably the biggest issue. Um, and also the baby not getting in the right position, head down, and sometimes the bubba can float around a little bit. So what were they, what, what, had they told you that they were concerned about anything during the latter part of the pregnancy? They did their, exactly what you just said. They did explain... What, why I now slotted into a high-risk pregnancy category and, and it was more about um, they, they were confident about that the baby was safe and the baby's okay and that's why they were obviously checking every week to be sure that she was okay. They, um, their main concern was obviously labour and coming closer into that, that's when they started to bring up that an induction was certainly preferred and that's, you know, almost a non-negotiable um, to just make sure that it was all done safely and that I would be safe and, more importantly, she would be safe when the waters broke. Yeah. And I think the way to think about that is imagine you've got a sink full of water and you've got the sink with a plug in it and the baby's head's a little bit like um, an apple bobbing around in the water, so it's floating around in the water. 
But, of course, you've also got spaghetti in the water, right, which is the cord around baby. If you open the plug, the first thing that's going to go down is the spaghetti. And what we really get worried in the setting of a woman where the head's not deep down in the pelvis and the only thing presenting before the, when the cervix opens is that a loop of spaghetti, in this case a loop of cord, can come out before baby's head. And that's not a good thing, obviously, for Bubba because if the cord comes out first, it spasms and then the baby loses blood supply. So what we really want to do is have that head down as much as we possibly can so that when the waters are broken, the first thing that sits on that cervix is the baby's head. So it's like the apple sitting in the sinkhole as opposed to a loop of spaghetti getting down there first. And that's the way that I sort of describe it to patients. Um, but, you know, and you, you do need to be careful, particularly if you've got waters, that you've got a lot of waters around the baby, that, that if you do look, notice any fluid loss, you're heading straight to the hospital, like not delaying at all. So what did they sort of tell you? Did they give you a time frame? as to when you might need to go into hospital? Yeah, they did. So they, they definitely explained everything you just did and they, they stressed when I started to hit, you know, 37 weeks and they knew that the other two, that I'd always got to the 40-week mark and even though I know you, you can never predict, predict what would happen with no matter how many children you have, although based on the other two, I'd, I was always closer to my due date or in Ella's case, way over. So from about 37 weeks, they did start to really say that, you know, if your waters break at home, um, you need to call an ambulance immediately. And they said, put the kids in the ambulance. It doesn't matter. You you must get to the hospital immediately for those reasons in case the cord slipped out. Um, thankfully, we only live about 20 minutes away. So, you know, I I, I always assured them to say, I'm, I'm not silly. I, I will, you know, I know that this is not a joke and that, you know, it's yeah. very serious so that I, I will. And I only say that because I think, you know, looking back, I, I do regret that I, I did know the severity of it, but now I'm kind of thinking I didn't fully accept it enough because I was so terrified to be induced again. Yeah. And whenever that, well, as soon as that word got brought up, I remember I had a, I was lucky enough to have a student midwife with me from for my journey, and and she was a, she's a paramedic as well. Yeah. Studying it now, studying midwifery, and I said to her, "No, I don't want to be induced. I I put my foot down. It's my body. I want to do it." So this. Is so can I just ask because you'd been induced with Jackson, and obviously you had a really good experience with Ella. What was your fear around induction? Because a lot of women have a fear around induction. What was the fear at this point in time about induction? I feel like it's maybe because I could compare the two. That, yeah. you know, all I could picture was, no, I don't want to be strapped to the bed. I don't want to be, you know, have a lot of pain and I want to be able to feel it. I, I want to be able to, you know, try to see if I go into labour naturally again because I yeah. obviously enjoy the experience. And, you know, I guess, yeah, even saying it now, I sit here and think, you know, that, the doc, the staff, they were obviously, you know, really, really pushing for that induction. Yeah. Um, they were happy to let me get to 40 weeks, but yeah. I definitely know from that 37 to 38-week appointments, they were really starting to say, Laura, yeah. we, we need to book this in. And, you know, I probably could have had her at 38 weeks. Yeah. But it was me that said, can you let me try to get to 40 weeks? Yeah. So now, look, you know, I'm I'm so happy nothing happened. I'm yeah. so I'm glad that my waters didn't break because yeah. I guess maybe the more I've looked into it after she was born, the more... You know, I thought to myself, wow, that was, you know, that's lucky that nothing happened before yeah, that. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's, it's, I can't change that. It's just, but even I was just you, scared. Even when you compare the, the, the labours, I mean, we've compared the labours between Jackson and Ella, but when you compare the actual birth of the two, did you feel that there was a big difference? Was there something that was, was it again the fact that you'd built up this expectation in, in yourself about wanting to go into labour naturally or was it more that the birth felt, the actual the labour rather than the birth felt different to you? Um, 
I think it was more the labour. The birth, yeah. honestly, to me, felt exactly the same. And, you know, Ella was slightly smaller than Jack's, but they were both pretty decent-sized babies. Yeah. So all, all of that felt the same. Ella was just faster. So I think yeah. for me I just thought if I'm not induced, you know, maybe I'll have, you know, a quick labour and the baby will just fly out again. Yeah. So how many, guess, how many kilos were the two? Um, Jack's was 3.98 not and then size. Ella was 3.75. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so they're, they're good, ba- like good, good healthy-sized babies. babies. Yeah. So. Um, but at the time, I did have a growth scan with Sophie when they were trying to work out why I was so big. And, yeah. you know, they did say, well, you know, the babies are a, decent, a healthy size. They definitely yeah. said healthy. But after that, there was actually no more growth scans. It was right. only for the fluid. Yeah. And I tried to say, you know, more as a lighthearted in there to say, you know, how's the baby looking? Is it big more to, to kind of have a laugh at the sonographer to say, what am I in for? But yeah. Look, I'm not sure, and I know they work hard. That you know, whether it was just no, I'm. We're just here to check the fluid, and that's it. So yeah. we were all actually none the wiser with how big Sophie was because she was four point three seven kilo. Big bubba. Yeah, yeah. So she was disguised in amongst all that water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, obviously, every pregnancy is different, and and so this was a whole. Unit. She's obviously just a bigger baby, yeah, produced yeah. a lot more fluid, and hence yeah. why there was a lot more fluid around. So obviously. And understandably, the doctors are concerned, uh, and but that it wasn't really something that was in your mind. Uh, and so you got to 40 weeks. Yeah. And what happened at 40 weeks? So I got to the 40 weeks and, and they were, um, I, I, I must have really been on their um, naughty list, I yeah. think, because. Well, did you get a present from Santa that year? <laughs> yeah. I don't know, actually, maybe Sophie was my present. Um, but, but look, the nurses were very good because they, they were, they were advocating for me as in they just, I think they could see how scared I was and that I just wanted to try to gain some control back. But understandably, the doctors were more like, no, you know, we're in control. We need to be in control here yeah. because we're trying to keep you and your baby safe. And yeah. that's com- completely fair enough and yeah. understandable. So I think they, they, we did manage to kind of barter towards a, um, a D day of two days over. They let, they, and I know they weren't happy about that, but we did that because our, um, Jackson and Ella, went to daycare only one day a week and so it was on that day. So we thought at least we can still surprise the, the family and our yes. friends. And they knew an induction was nearing but we were we just lied about the day yeah, and said. Yeah. And so my husband was able to drop them off and it was still a surprise. We knew they were looked after. So, you know, we, we kind of were a bit cheeky like that. Yeah. So they, they, you know, but I'm, I'm sure they would have, in the end, her movements and everything, she was very, very well. So I yes. think and I was okay. I feel like that's the only reason why they allowed that kind of bartering to go on in regards yeah. to the induction date. If if there was any other dangers, then they they wouldn't have. And I think you know, there's a big there's a big thing, and even in my own practice, there's a big thing about having a sense of or allowing a sense of autonomy in terms of the the birthing process, or in, t- in terms of when the induction would be, or even if we induce. And that sense of autonomy, in a way needs to be preserved, but it's very difficult. Actually, I, I find it exceptionally difficult being an obstetrician when. You've come from an experience where you've, you know, like I've witnessed goodness knows how many thousands of births, right, and and being fortunate enough to be involved in all those pregnancy journeys as well and knowing where the outcomes are and how the outcomes play in my mind and yet then also respecting the autonomy of the situation as well. It's, it's, it's probably a little bit easier for me because I've had nine months to sort of develop a rapport with a woman all the way through. It can be a lot harder when you're working in the public sector, and I certainly find it hard when I work in the public sector, to sort of try to preserve that sense of autonomy for the woman but at the same time also sort of try to use my 
experience to 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 educate about what the process will be. It's ve- it's, it's a very difficult fine line, and I suppose bartering is <laughs> is what it is. But we f- I, f- I find it very different. It's very easy when you go to an orthopedic surgeon. You've got a fractured leg. They go, you need to have surgery on your leg. You know, that's a no brainer, isn't it? Um, but it but this and it, that's your autonomy. I need my my knee fixed. The, I think this sense of um, you know, preserving that autonomy, but at the same time, and none of us want to play the patriarchal, you know, that 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 sort of sense of the doctor being the patriarch and telling people what to do in every field of medicine is sort of gone now. We do want patients to have an informed decision about where they go, but I think we all find it a little bit difficult about how much we actually talk about things and how much we then say, you know, I really, really think you need to do this. So it's interesting that you got bartering in there. I know, I know, and it's and it's something I, I can certainly say they weren't happy about it. The, yeah. the doc, they were not happy with me at all. And yeah. um, even my husband got grumpy with me and saying, why don't you just listen to him? So yeah. then everyone was grumpy in the room. But yeah. it's, um, I think for me, you know, and it's, um, and a lot of, I would hope that a lot of women that have given birth would side with me in a sense of that you just, you know, it's your body. It's your, you know, I'm the one that has to go through the pain and the birth. And, and I know I find a lot of things when people would say you're excited to have, you know, your third baby, I'd say, oh, I'm scared, I'm terrified. And they'd say, but you've done it before. And I said, exactly. So I yeah, know what's coming. Yeah. And I'm, I, quite frankly, I, you know, I love, I love the feeling of when they place the baby in your chest, but I'm not going to lie, I don't like the labour and birth because yeah. it hurts, it's painful. I think it's, in every in every work, uh, language across the world it is called labour for a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's hard, it's hard work and it's, you know, it's something that I, I'm sure there is probably people out there but you can't say you'd walk in skipping on your feet going, I'm so excited to go through this pain right now. Yeah. It's, you're scared. So so that you got to 40 weeks and two days, the kids are off into childcare. What yeah. was the plan and what was the process? What, what did they explain to you and how did it all how did that first part of the induction process go for you? So I drove myself in, which that was really bizarre because um, we had I had to be there by 6, but the yeah. daycare didn't open until 6.30. So, you know, I just had to go off on my own and yeah. I'll never forget walking up to It was just one second I was, um, you know, drinking my coffee, just going, it's all right, you'll be right, and then I just burst into tears. So if yeah. anyone, like, was following me in this car, they would have thought, this yeah. what's going on with this yeah. lady? I remember walking in and I said, I'm, I'm here to have my baby. And I was, I even remember shaking my head as I said it because I yeah. just thought, geez, this is just so bizarre. But um, that was, it was, the first part was really good. And my student midwife was there and we had a friend that was taking photos for us. And when they came in to examine and they were happy to break the waters um, without Glenn there, my husband, or they asked me. And I said, I'm, you know, if you say that it's just breaking my waters, I don't think, you know, he's, he's going to be okay to miss that. But it was upon that examination when they felt that they could still move her head quite a lot. So they said, look, Let's number one wait till your husband's here, and number two wait for the day staff to arrive because they said, you know, at the moment, given this examination, there is a very high chance that you could just go off to theatre. So, obviously, at that point, I, you know, I was already scared, as I just mm. said, and my my heart rate it went up that much to the point that they had to get the um, ECG monitor on me mm-hmm. to monitor it for forty five minutes because it just went too through high. the roof. It wow. was just crazy. So because I was just so scared, and then um. So, yes, yeah, so, I mean, obviously they were concerned that as they were going to break the waters because the baby's head was not in the pelvis, yep. a bit like a basketball, uh, not being through the basketball hoop. If they break the waters, those loops of cord could potentially come before baby's head. And if that occurs, then you'd need an emergency seizure, obviously, which would be the safest thing. Exactly. And, and it's one of the reasons why they would have been concerned also that if that happened at home, that's 
potentially what could yeah. have happened. Yeah. And we, in those cases, we like to perform what's termed a controlled ARM or a controlled artificial rupture of membrane. So I suspect they were saying to you, let's just wait until hubby gets here so we can do that. Just in case, definitely. So, yeah, that was the plan all along to do that. Yeah. So then once, I think it was about maybe 9.30, so I got there at 6, so I got all the way to 9.30, yeah. and um, then they finally did that. And I had my waters broken with Jackson, um, yeah. which was, you know, just the they clipped it in and, yeah. and off they went. But this, it, it honestly took about 15, 20 minutes because yeah. it, once they did it, um, the doctor held her, kind of, she explained to me that she held her finger yeah. there um, yeah. and she just let it out in little bits and sometimes she would try to let more out and then I remember she'd go, oh, no, 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 and would, you know, kind of, I guess, assume slide her finger back over. So Yes, yeah, so we just wait. Basically, again, if you, you're sort of thinking to yourself that you've got this apple sort of sitting just above the, the, the plug hole, you're just gently pushing that, that little head up to allow a little bit of water through. If you just let like a tsunami of water to come through, or you can imagine all of a sudden it goes straight yeah. out. So, yes, that was a really good decision to do slowly but surely. Yeah. There would yeah. have been a lot of water. It was so much. It was ridiculous. I could yeah. not believe it. And even I remember, um, and by the time I had Sophie being induced, one thing they did um, try to lift me up, my spirits up, is they mentioned that everything was now portable. So they said you yeah. can walk around, you can go on the Swiss ball. It's yeah. all, you could go in the shower, it's fine. I would just have to will, will, everything, will everything with me. So that that was good. And and they were reassuring to say that, you know, this is your third baby, so you've got to stop focusing so much on that this is going to take a long time. And they said it's most likely not going to, So yeah. which in the end they were, they were correct. So, yeah. But once the waters were done and I was able to um, stand up and they put the monitors on me, both my husband and the student midwife and photographer, all of them said, oh, my gosh, you're, you're, you, you look different. You're yeah. small. You lost half a baby. Yeah, they said <laughs> it's just crazy. They've gone from having this, you know, it really looked like you could have stuck a pin in me and I yeah. would have exploded. And, and that's one thing to say, and I've done it a few times over the course of the last couple of years where women have so much fluid and because of that huge amount of fluid, number one, I'm, I've admitted them to hospital because I'm worried about that unstable. Like we, took, we talk about it, the head being out of the pelvis or like a basketball being out of the hoop. That's called an unstable lie. And in some cases, I'll actually admit women into hospital because I'm worried about the cord break, uh, the cord. Um, but in some cases, the fluid can be so much and the tummy can be so big that you're not only in a pain, but in addition to that, you can't breathe. Mm. And sometimes we do something called anamnio reduction where uh, we place a needle into the, into the uterus and suck some of the fluid out just to get, you could get, you know, half a litre out or something like that. Um, you run the risk that you might end up going into labour. We'd only do it towards the latter part of pregnancy, but if it's causing that much discomfort and you decrease in the quality of your life we sometimes sometimes can do that um, but obviously in your case you didn't need to but you're right then as soon as all this water's gone it's like well this is just now bubba yeah it was relief and it would i remember feeling her move a little bit and it was quite strange because it i could really feel, feel her now that, because yeah. i guess i could feel her moving you know before they broke the waters obviously but it was very um Oh, it's hard to describe. Like, it, I guess it, maybe it wasn't as defined. Of course. Well, yeah. you had a, a lot of cushioning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's like being in a pool. Yeah. <laughs> imagine the pool's gone. So, okay, so the hormone drip starts. Mm -hmm. I'd imagine given the fact this is now your third baby, everything would have just ramped up pretty quickly. Yeah, it did. So probably by then I would say uh, anywhere between 10, 13, and 11 um, that it finally got started. And I think because I knew how quickly the dosages would turn up with Jackson, I, I was very vocal in saying, Can you, are we doing it slow? Can we please do the dosage slow? So they did. Yeah. They agreed to every hour they would do it a little bit. So admittedly, Sophie's labour 
although it was induced, um, felt exactly the same as Alice because it it built up slowly. So I was getting the the contractions and I could feel them getting stronger. But in between, I was able to, you know, we were having snacks and and laughing and and that type of stuff. So it wasn't probably until around, I'd say, one o'clock that it started to, that's when I I was really feeling the the big contractions. And I think that's an important point because, uh, and I think this is in reflection now, when you look at the three, two inductions and, and, and the spontaneous labour in the middle. I think the fact that Jackson's labour was so intense was partly because you were being induced as a first-time mother, but also it's got to do with ha- whoever's in control of that drip. And basically when we're giving, and again, I've said to you, just said a little bit earlier that obstetrics is very easy, but the normal hormone that gets secreted during the whole labour process is something called oxytocin. And it'll, of course, it'll slowly build up over a period of time and the uterus gets sensitive to it over a period of time. We give a synthetic version of that naturally occurring hormone called oxytocin. And so quite nicely and quite easily, we get synthetic and we got oxytocin and we put the two words together, mash it up and we get syntocin on. But we give the syntocin, we should give the syntocin on at just the right amount of dose to cause just the right amount of contractions without stressing you or the baby out. And so maybe in that whole process of Jackson, the drip was just put on a little bit too strong and it didn't allow you that opportunity to experience what you did with Sophie, which which was a gradual increase in in labour pains. And I think, so if there's one thing maybe to take out of it is that the induction of labour can be different depending on who's controlling the dose of medication because it's a bit like, you know, any drug. If you give a hell of a lot, there's going to be a side effect to it. That's right. And that's what now, you know, before I had Sophie, you know, I would say to people, oh, induction, it's it's awful, it's terrible, it's so painful, you know, try to avoid it if you can. Yeah. But now after having Sophie, I now, you know, it's it's just my, I was just going based on my experience, experience which, yeah. you know, that now that I've had the two, I actually now would feel more than fine with an induction. It's yeah. now I'd feel comfortable with it yeah. because I've experienced that it can feel like what a natural labour can do. And I think in most hospitals, particularly in the public sector, well, they'll have a different regimen for a second-time mother in terms of the dosing of medication as well. So it's almost half the dose. And in your case, you asked for half the dose increased every hour as opposed to every half right. hour, which probably just gently brought it up. So you obviously were two or three centimetres when the waters were broken or one or two centimetres. I think, I think they said around three centimetres right. already. So, yeah. um you know, that was already a good sign that I yeah. think um, Body things, was ready. Yeah, it was starting to get ready. And it's something that um, I think, yeah, like I said, around one o'clock is when it was really, you know, there was, you know, they were very, very intense and there were the breaks were getting less in between. And I was still on the Swiss ball at that point, but I think it was about two o'clock that I got on the bed. And I think from previous labours, that's when that's usually my sign to go, I'm, you know, for me, it's I'm done. I'm, I'm in so much pain, but I think to the nurses and my husband, that's oh, she's getting close because yeah. I tend to go on the side and, and into like the fetal position. Yes. But um, yeah, it's, um, you know, it, like, it, yeah, to compare them all, it was, um, you know, it's so similar, those Sophie and Ella's, but yet one natural, one induction. So it's, you know, yeah. yeah. So we got to 11 o'clock basically is when the hormone drip started, but one o'clock you're starting to feel a little bit more pain. It's now two o'clock and you're yep. on the bed. Tell us what's happening then. So then um, by then I was actually really good that I um, still hadn't asked for any pain relief. I was still, yep. you know, trying to go through it. And as I mentioned earlier, we'd done a calm birth um, pr- like course, course with Jackson, which, yeah. you know, I, I did. I find that I didn't get to use with his birth completely just because things got changed. But 
I found that I definitely used it for Sophie's just yeah. and it was more the whole time I felt like I was my own personal trainer in my head just constantly yeah. talking to myself. Um, and honestly, all I thought about was Jackson and Ella the whole time, just thinking you've, you've got to bring their baby into the world. Like you, they were they were on the front of my mind the, the entire time, especially in those painful bits. I yeah. remember I kept thinking to myself, just do it for them, do it for them like over and over. Yeah. Um, by then they said, did you want to have a couple of turns on the gas? And I said to them, can you just check me? I just want to know, you know, am I close? But um, I'm not I'm not sure why, but they they said I wasn't to be checked by th- till, until 3 o'clock or 3.30. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, that's one thing I, I never asked why. Yeah. Because um, for me, I'm someone that, you know, if they had said to me, you're nine centimetres, I'd say, okay, great, I'm so close. But, you know, you, you kind of want to know. I think know. there was a rationale behind that because yeah. generally speaking, we try to limit the amount of internal examinations we give because we don't want to increase the risk of infection. Uh, and we tend to do our first examination after four hours of good contractions. However, in saying that, with your history and knowing that you had a five-hour labour with Ella, it probably wouldn't have been such a stretch to go, well, yeah, let's check because it was such a quick labour last time. Yeah, that's right. And I think I do recall... Um, one of the, the head midwives turning to someone else in the room and said she'll have this baby before that anyway. And I do I do remember kind of hearing that in background. Yeah. So I feel like they knew I was close. So I, I did have a couple of turns on the gas and air and that did, um, I find for me it really helps control my breathing because by yeah. then when you start to get in that much pain, you, you try to focus on those big deep breaths but you, you do tend to tense up and everything clenches up. It's just a natural thing because you're in so much pain. So I find for me breathing it in, it, it really makes me, forces me into taking those big deep breaths. Yeah. Um, I can't say it really gives me the pain relief. It kind of makes me feel a little bit, um, you know, like you've had a couple of wines or something. That's, yeah, you kind of just feel yeah. a bit. So, But it is. I mean, these whole things about calm birth yeah. and hypnobirthing, it is about just controlling your breathing and getting into a mindset. Obviously, you were using your children as a focal point, you know, I often say to people, I want you to just sit there and just in between contractions just think of somewhere nice to be. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's just a matter of focusing. Yeah, yeah, and it was. And I honestly, I the entire time, it's all, it's all I thought about. So you weren't far away, presumably in your own self. You could tell no. that, or you didn't know. I feel like um, I just knew. I was like, I'm in a lot of pain, and I, you know, I think I want to get some pain relief because yeah. I'm just, I'm exhausted. I'm really tired. But it wasn't until, um, you know, I started to notice there wasn't much break in between, and I started to feel like I could feel the baby moving down and up. Um, and I must have changed my vocals. Something yeah. must have changed. And it wasn't until then that the um, the midwife that had been with me the whole time, she had said, um, you're pushing, aren't you, Laura? And, and this is when I guess, you know, I, I, I slipped out of my, um, you know, the strong mindset because I remember thinking, yes, but I I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to yeah. do it. And that's when they said, all right, here we go. And they started to, you know, get the bed off and got me to turn around and, it was, I just remember shaking my head and that's when my husband really had to get in my ear and say, you've got to do it because I just, um, I, I really, I guess, closed up in my mind then. I didn't yeah. want to do it. I was, I just knew what was coming. I just knew. I think a lot of women go through that transitional yeah. period where there's, you know, you've been able to get through all those great contractions and now this, you, you know, you're the inevitable. Yeah. You, you can yeah. You know the inevitable. And in your case, you'd already done it twice yeah. before. So you knew what the inevitable was. It's at that point where you need a really strong person, whether your partner or whether a support person in the room or, you know, the midwife or the obstetrician just to say, look, we've got to focus now. That's and it. So obviously he was in a good mindset to tell you what to do. Yeah, they were they were very good. And at that point, um, you know, they took the gas and air off me, which they knew that 
for me, that was what I needed. There's, yeah. You know, she took it off me and said, you, you've got to push this baby out. And you're yeah. right, I had my husband, you know, he was, he was really in my ear saying, you, you know, you can do it, you, you've just got to do it. I had the student midwife, she was, you know, so I kind of had one in each year. And it's it's something that I find that, you know, it's really, you know, you're really proud to be a part of like the motherhood, um, you know, kind of circle that it, it is amazing what you do. Like, you know, you're in all this pain, you know how much it's going to hurt, but we do it. You just, yeah. you do it anyway. And it's, um, but that's, that's obviously when, you know, I'm kind of glad that I didn't know how big she was at that point because I never felt it with the other two, but with her, and I think it was maybe me not um, allowing my body to do what it needs to do. I could feel her head going down and coming back up yeah. and then kind of with doing that a few times. And that was, um, that was, that was not fun. Yeah. <laughs> I do. So I think that that turned me off even more that I thought, oh, you know, I just don't want to do this last bit. So, um, so then we we get to the, did someone examine you at this point? Um, so they know that no, you're no. The, so I think once they they followed my lead when I said yes, I'm starting to push, and yeah. I said I can feel the head. They, um, I think once they kind of got the bed set up and everything, they could start to see. I feel like I don't know. To be honest, I don't know. I don't know if there was any type of physical examination, or they, yeah, they could just they see. Could just see. They could see that there was a and baby also coming. You can often tell, like yeah. you said, your voice changes. Yeah, or the, you know, you start to feel. You can tell the woman starting. Yeah, to yeah. So what happened then? Obviously, things are, we're getting to the pointy end now, really. Yeah, yep. So everything was fine in the sense of, you know, the, um, you know, that, that ring of fire moment, everyone, or not, I have some friends that say they, they didn't feel it, but I, that can't be right because yeah. it's definitely a ring of fire moment for me. Yeah. And her head came out and I do remember thinking, oh, yes, like now it, the body just does that slimy slop out and it just, yeah. just falls out and <laughs> it's, that's what it feels like. It's just that relief, just that yeah. pure instant and someone flicks the switch off on the pain and, that's you know, it's done. And you got the baby in your arms. Yeah. So then um, the head came out and and then I remember them saying, you know, you've got to push, Laurie, you got to push. And I'm, I thought to myself, I am. Like I'm, you know, and surely I, I didn't think I needed to push. And, and then I do remember looking at the midwife and she looked at the, sorry, I'm going to get upset that's every right. time. Um, she looked at the student midwife and they pushed the emergency button um, and she looks and then everyone ran in but what we found out later, they knew they could see something was going on so I mm. think they barely pushed the button and they had already come running in yeah. and there was about, I'm going to say, at least 10, 10 to 12 people. They all came in. They all knew what they needed to do but it was it was organised chaos, let's yeah. just say it that way. Yeah. And one, oh, yeah, her job, she ran straight to me and she held my hand and she said, Laura, your baby's stuck and we need, like, we need to get it out. And they were, you know, they were, they really lifted, um, they pulled my legs down and lifted them up and they were yell- they were constantly communicating with me and they said, Laura, your baby's shoulder's stuck and we've really got to try to get it out mm. as quick as we can. And, you know, I'm looking at my husband and he's grey. He's completely mm. grey. You can see he's terrified. Um, and I think for me, it, again, it's amazing that you just, it, it was kind of out of body. Like, I've, yes, it was painful, but it wasn't at the same yeah. time. It's almost like it was temporarily switched off for me because I just thought, okay, you just get her, get it, get her out. Well, I didn't know it was a girl at the time, yeah. but just get the baby out. And then um, they tried that and then they um, a nurse came around and she basically climbed on the bed and to me it was like compressions, CPR yeah. compressions to, yeah. to, to try to dislodge the baby from there. And that didn't work. And then um, the third attempt was they just, they pulled Sophie out. They just, I think, put their, reached their hand through to dislodge yeah. her and and she slid out, and I do remember they. I could see it. And I, I watched her come out, and um, they they did tap her onto me, but she was just completely blue. She was just her whole entire body was blue, and I, I couldn't even touch her. I just kind of looked at them, and and I looked at my husband, and but then they just took her straight away. And I think for me, the one thing that scarred me the most was 
when they put her on the bed next to me and they, everyone was working on her, I still had the nurse with me. She was comforting me. Like it was just, it truly was amazing how yeah. they, they treated us through all this. But they, a little gap formed between the staff and I could see the mask. I could see her chest pumping up and down and yeah. it was just, you know, it was something that we were so lucky that it was only a short time. It was, you know, I think the emergency once her head was out was about a minute 30 yeah. to get her out, just over a minute a minute 30 and then um took her about two and a half minutes to get her to take a breath and cry. So once we heard that cry, it, it felt like someone took two concrete blocks off our shoulder, just yeah, a sigh of relief. And I looked at my husband and we just kind of shook our heads at each other and just thought, oh, my gosh, I, I can't believe this just, just happened. And, yeah. um, you know, once they, they got her breathing and she was crying a bit better, they put her straight back onto me and she, she didn't leave me for about, oh, I'm going to say, at least two hours, two and a half yeah. hours. She just... When you look back at that, obviously quite distressing, was there any part of that that you felt, because it's nice even for me as an obstetrician to know, is there anything that you felt was the most anxiety-provoking? Obviously seeing her, apart from seeing her, which, you know, is unavoidable, what did you, what were were the overwhelming sense of, you know, your senses, what were they sort of telling you? I think think it was panic that you just, or... But at the same time, disbelief. I'm going to say it was disbelief because, you know, I knew her head was out. I could feel it out. I could yeah. I could feel it there. And that was the bizarre thing that I thought I can feel my baby right there. And But all these people and just the, the you know, they're yelling at each other what to do and there's all this stuff. And it, but it was so loud. But then all I could hear was myself in my mind thinking, where's my baby? Like yeah, what, what's wrong with my baby? It's It was such, it was something that I feel like at the time, it was such a blur and it wasn't until afterwards that, yeah, you just, you look back and you think, did that just happen to yeah, us? Like, was that me? And, you know, it was just a whirlwind. So just to explain it to people, I mean, what you had was shoulder dystocia where the baby's shoulders come under the pubic bone and get stuck. And so the best way of thinking about it is obviously as the baby's head comes out, normally the shoulders are up and down. It's almost like a truck coming under a bridge. And the truck, if the truck's too big for the bridge, obviously it's not going to get under the bridge. And so what we try to do as obstetricians and midwives is encourage that truck to sort of get under the bridge. And there's several ways that we can do that. Number one, you talk about, you know, lifting the legs up and bringing the legs back. Well, that's sort of, it's almost like trying to spring open the distance between the road and the truck, a road and the bridge rather, to give a little bit more room to see if that truck can go underneath. And that sometimes works and that may be the only thing that we need to do. The next thing you do is, uh, as obstetricians or midwives, is we try to rotate the baby's shoulder. So we try to get the truck and see if we can just lean it to the side either way. And if we can lean it to the side, of course, if we lean it to the side, then it'll come underneath the bridge, yeah? That may not work. So the next thing we try to do is uh, someone will get on top and try to press down on top of the shoulders to try to make the shoulders curve a little bit. So again, it's like getting on top of the truck and pressing the truck down a little bit so that the, you know, push the wheels down, push the top of the truck down just to get that truck underneath the underneath the bridge. They do all these range of things. I tend to, and what I tend to do is I actually tend to grab the baby's back arm. So if you can grab the baby's back arm, because you remember you've got the shoulder to shoulder tip, it's the, the, the distance of the baby. If you tend to grab the posterior arm, so the arm at the back of Bubba, underneath closest to the bottom, the woman's bottom, and you can pull that arm out, then the distance between 
now that's underneath the pubic bone is not from shoulder to shoulder, it's from armpit to shoulder because you've got rid of the arm bit that's the, the uh, you know, maybe one or two centimetres. And that often allows the baby's head to sink or the baby's shoulders rather to sink underneath the, the pubic bone and allow the baby to come out. It's one of the things that, you know, I probably have a few grey hairs because of shoulder dystocia. It's one of the things that's, you know, it, it's, a, it's, it's why we train to be obstetricians and midwives is, to, is obviously to to manage those sorts of complications. We never want them to happen. It's a bit like a pilot never wanting to have a, a crash landing, but you train for it because it could happen. And invariably it does, and particularly with large babies. And Sophie was obviously a lot larger than the other two, which is probably the reason why. And the other thing about that is we get concerned about a couple of things. Number one, if we press too hard on the baby's head as we're trying to bring that baby underneath the shoulder, we can cause a little bit of injury to the nerves in the neck, which then can affect uh, nerves of the hand. And so babies can get some small paralysis of the hand. And the other thing that we're really worried about is the time interval from the baby's head being born to the time the baby's body being born. And we need that to be less than six minutes. Ideally, like in your case, a minute and a half is awesome because that means the baby's still getting oxygen and everything's okay. So it sounds like the team did pretty well. I think one of the things, particularly as we become more experienced as obstetricians and midwives, is trying to avoid that sense of chaos and panic. Um, what happens invariably in a lot of hospitals is that the button gets pressed and then there's this cacophony of sounds and it sounds like the world's about to, to implode upon you. I think I actually had a GP who his wife had a shoulder dystocia for a baby, was 4.3 kilos, first-time baby. And then after the birth, I said to them, hey, listen, that was a pretty significant shoulder dystocia. And he said to me, I didn't even realise and I think part of it is about how you manage the, the whole process of an emergency. And the way that we get taught is, as obstetricians, the way that we get taught and as midwives, it was interesting. We had a, I remember when one of my lectures, we had a pilot that sort of talked about how Americans and how British pilots handle a crash landing or handle a emergency situation in air. The Americans are all, oh, my God, we're going down. The plane's about to crash. Quick, we're dropping altitude, right? There's a sense of, oh, my God, the world. You can imagine Donald Trump sitting there. Oh, the world's about to end, right? Whereas the British were very formal. They were like, okay, we're presently at 2,000 feet. Uh, we're descending very rapidly down to 1,000 feet. Uh, and they were very measured in the way that they approached. the. And so when you listen to the two, even though it was exactly the same scenario, and they did exactly the same thing in terms of how they managed the, the, the process of that crash landing. That Americans sounded like they were loose cannons, whereas the British sounded very controlled. So whenever I teach my registrars, I always say to them, you need to sound, not British, of course, but you <laughs> need to be very measured. And I always tell them, and particularly for the girls, it's a little bit hard, but I tell them to lower their voice and speak slowly. And if you lower your voice and speak slowly, it's a sense of calm. Even though there can be chaos there, it's a sense of calm. And I think part of the part of the biggest thing that happens with birth trauma, and this isn't a traumatic event, is just how that process played out. And and you know, hopefully that those people that were there at your birth will will then have had a debrief and gone, well, what could we have done better next time to manage this process so that it won't happen again? And in actual fact, there's a lot of a lot of hospitals are doing, particularly in Victoria, are doing something called a prompt course where they 
they actually learn how to manage these situations in a cool, calm and collected manner so that it doesn't have a negative impact upon patients and the way they perceive things. So, yeah, so obviously from your perspective, it was like, geez, hey, yeah. Yeah, it was, It was. One, you know, something's happening here. Yeah. Like it's, and, you know, and they, and we were, it was really good because after, um, you know, still in the birthing suite and both of them had been transferred to the maternity ward, we were off, I think, at least five times, um, my husband and I were offered counselling and, and gave, they gave us a debrief and offered counselling um, they offered it us separately. They they came in and said, we want to talk to your husband on his own, make sure he's okay. So they they were very good in, and I think that's what I mentioned earlier at, at the time, well, you know, I was still in that adrenaline, like, it's okay, she's okay, I'm, yeah. I'm fine, everything's yeah. fine. But then I guess once, you know, maybe those hormones wore off and things kind of settled. When did that happen? I think, you know, I, I would say within the first few months because, yeah. So you know, really for the first few months you were fine? Yeah, I was kind of, I was okay. What made you start thinking about it again then? I think when, um, you know, maybe it was a bit sooner because I know it was as, you know, you know, generally when visitors come around and a lot of our friends have had kids and the most common question is what was your birth like? And so I think the first few times we told it was more a, oh, you'll never guess what happened and it was like a, it was like we were telling an adventure story. But then, yeah. then I started to, you know, talk about it a little bit more to other people and then then I would get upset like I just did then and I find when I wrote about it to Tiny Hearts, I got upset writing it and, I th- yeah. and you know, to this day I still think, geez, you know, just just talk about it. It's yeah. okay but it, it obviously does affect me because I just can't, the emotions just really come in and I, f- I don't know what part of it it is and I, I think it's purely just that I, I, maybe I can still just recall the fear as a mother seeing, you know, your baby not looking well. I yeah. think that's what. What has affected me? Perhaps it so. Was not that. so much the actual birth, but looking across and seeing the bub. Yes. Yeah. And have you had any? Uh, I mean, obviously they offered you counselling at that point, but yeah. we're now a month or two out, and of course she's twenty-two months now. Did you say? No, she, fourteen months. 14 yeah. Months. So you. So in- have you had any more counselling since? I haven't, um, and I know it's certainly something that I know I'd need to, and particularly if we do, you know, go ahead and have another baby. Yeah. I do know that going into that journey, yeah, I would have to sort myself out before doing childbirth again and I know and I feel like I'm someone that would go I'm all right I'm okay I'm okay and then it would get closer and I would really close up and go okay I'm not doing I can't do this so um I know I do need to address it definitely definitely. what have you found I mean obviously you've then been able to not only talk about it with friends but and, and you've used social media as well as a way of being able to communicate what have you found has been an overwhelming response and, and what have been other people's responses in terms of their own situations? I think two things that I've drawn out of it the most is the first was when I shared the blog that I, you know, that I put up sharing the story. And the main thing was so many people saying, wow, I had no idea. Yeah. And particularly some of them were from people that had babies around the same time as me and we would catch up. And and one of them even said to me that she had similar about her baby um, not getting stuck but not needing oxygen. And then we, we kind of thought to ourselves, isn't that a bit strange that we both sat with each other, with our babies, drinking coffee, happy days, but yet we both should have gone, no, we're, we're, I'm not okay. It's yeah. My birth was actually terrifying, but yet yeah. we, we didn't. We, you know, and I guess, you know, all of this, it's just changing that stigma around, you know, it's okay to say that what happened to you was not a nice experience. And I found that, you know, since reaching out on social media saying I'm not okay, I can't even tell you how many people, friends and family that, have message saying, number one, good on you for sharing it. That's very brave. And number yeah. two, this was what happened to me. I didn't know that this happened to you and, you know, I felt similar. And then, you know, conversation is striped from there. So yeah. I feel like that's if that's something I can do to try to teach people, you know, 
to talk talk about it because it's don't discredit what happened. It's like what I said earlier. I, I feel like it's because people think, oh well, people aren't going to think my journey was that bad. Yeah. You know, it's there's worse out there, which there is, but you, you still went through it. You still went through something, and it's you know we you can't tell someone they can't feel something. Yeah, without a doubt. Mm. And I think that's and I said I keep saying this at every episode, but I, you know, in part saying it to you personally is that you know we, the, the process of childbirth the first experience you ever had was with Jackson or alternatively one born every minute <laughs> and every and the second experience is Ella and the third experience is Sophie and each one of those experiences is unique yeah um and we don't as a as as a woman now and as a man ever see any other birth experiences apart from the ones that are directly we're directly associated with Historically, you would have seen hundreds, maybe, you know, at least tens, you know, before you actually had your own baby. And you would have drawn on your own experiences about childbirth from being a woman seeing and helping other women in childbirth. And yet that's completely gone. And if there's one thing that social media has done, all the bad stuff, you know, swimwear models yeah. and all that sort of stuff that's, you know, made a bad um, you know, body dysmorphia sort of thing. One thing it has done is it's sort of made women see, and it's one thing, one of the reasons why I really love doing these podcasts is sort of giving women uh, an understanding of what, what childbirth's about and what experiences are and how those experiences are so different and that there are people around you that can support you and have had similar experiences to you that you can talk about. It. And yeah. you don't have to say, hey, my experience was the best it can ever be. And it also shows you that, that things can go wrong and yeah. that you do need a skilled set of individuals around you to be able to help you at the time of crisis. Definitely. I mean, Ella was obviously, sorry, Sophie was obviously a lot bigger than the other two um, and, you know, I'm not your obstetrician but, you know, my feeling would be and this would be sort of a little bit of advice that if you were having a big baby again uh, you, and you wanted to have a vaginal birth, you probably would consider an induction yeah, and they a lot were, earlier. Yeah, and that's something we joked about that, you know, just when they came in to check if we're okay, they went straight into, now if you want baby number four, yeah. we'll probably induce you at 38 weeks. Yeah. And we just said, guys, we'll never be back here again. But <laughs> I'm sure they're going to do exactly that. They're going to laugh at us when we walk in there next time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you do, you do. Laugh. But, I mean, I think that's important because I think, you know, at the end of the day, and I was, I was speaking to you about that general practitioner who uh, had the shoulder dystocia and I said, look, in all honesty, if you have a baby now somewhere around the order of about 4.3 kilos, I'm on, I, I would recommend having a cesarean section. And at 30, I think we had the seizure at 39 weeks, the baby was 4.5 kilos. I mean, he was a unit. Wow. They, so, and they also offered, yeah, they did definitely, they have said that to yeah, me as well. They said, yeah. we are more than fine if you want to elect for a cesarean. Yeah. Um, if but I think you, look, you had a three point, what did you say, 3.7 and a 3.4 kilogram baby beforehand? Yeah, so 3.9, 3.7 and yeah. then 4.3. So, yeah. so I think, yeah. you know, you could safely say that if you had a baby at 3.8 kilos, a vaginal birth is okay. fine, yeah. 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 I think once you're getting to the four kilogram mark, you're probably going to say, mm, you know, yeah, so and, it wasn't and enjoyable. <laughs> it wasn't enjoyable, and I think the and the other thing about that is, and, and people will get scared of Caesar. Oh, how can you possibly recommend a Caesar? A woman's had three babies, but your birth experience with having a Caesar, you know, the, and the trauma that you've experienced in your own mind in terms of what's happened after childbirth will be minimised by having a cesarean. Yes, you might think, oh, well, I've had a Caesar, and that I failed myself as a woman. But, you know, the ultimate result is having a, a nice, healthy, happy yeah, baby. Yeah, definitely. And, and also think, and avoiding that trauma afterwards. Yeah, I was about to say it's it's something that if you know you're avoiding trauma and 
overriding fear going into because for me now I already know childbirth again will be a trigger. It, yeah, it will definitely trigger and I feel like going into it I'd be okay. You'd be on that autopilot but I, I certainly know the second that I know I'm ready to push out another baby, it would it would go one or two ways. Yeah. It would be okay or it will be a trigger and, you, you know, I feel like that's something you can't risk that close to a, a you know, a baby being born is a mother freaking out yeah. and going, I can't do it. So Yeah, you, I mean, I think in any future pregnancy, you, you definitely need to gonna have to develop, number one, a good you know, understanding of what occurred and, and counselling before you go into labour. But I think the other thing is also being really trusting of the people that are looking after you during your childbirth and, and knowing that the skill sets that they've got to help you and to recognise those issues uh, about what might occur uh, and also to allow you to um, uh, not be freaked out about it because it might happen again. Yeah. Yeah. That's but it. but how are we going to manage that yeah. if it happens again? Yeah. So that you know, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to happen. And you know, the result is you're going to have a healthy, happy baby. But don't be alarmed. And it, the other thing is, some babies without a shoulder dystocia will come out and need one or two minutes right. of a bit of oxygen mm-hmm. as well. And just to realise that that's actually normal as well. That that can happen irrespective of whether the baby has a shoulder dystocia or not. Yeah. We've covered a lot. (laughs) Yes, we have. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to, talk about that. And I certainly hope there's a lot of women out there who've listened and a lot of men who've listened and gone, well, you know what, you know, this is going to better prepare us or maybe normalise what's happened for us as well and, and start a conversation with other people so that if you've had an experience that has been a little bit less than ideal or in your case quite traumatic, that you actually just start talking about it so that you can feel a lot more comfortable in yourself. Um, you certainly can listen to new episodes of the Bump Birth and Beyond podcast every uh, fortnight on the Thursday and certainly make sure you keep up to date with me and be the first to hear about new episodes by following at Dr. Joseph Scroy through the Instagram and also at Tiny Hearts Education, both on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, thank you so much for just sharing your story. No, thanks for having me, Jay. No worries.